Hello, I'm Dr. Ralph Ford, the Chancellor of Penn State Behrend, and you are listening to Behrend Talks. My guest today is Dr. Chris Shelton, an Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology and Director of the Virtual and Augmented Reality Lab here at Penn State Behrend. It's located in Knowledge Park, and uh, welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. I'm going to do a little bio of you, Chris, so if you'll be patient. Uh, you have your Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Wyoming. Go Cowboys, right? Is That's that, right. Right, the Cowboys. Yep. And a master's in clinical psychology from Eastern Illinois University and a bachelor's in psychology from Northern Illinois University. Your research is focused on ADHD and sluggish cognitive tempo the development of mental health assessments and interventions, and the use of immersive technologies, including virtual and augmented reality. This past June, you were recognized here in Erie for all the work that you're doing in the community by the Erie Reader. They're part of their 40 Under 40, their annual list of innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are moving the area forward. So again, welcome here. Why don't you start out and tell us a little bit, how did you end up here at Barron? What's the career path that brought you here to Erie, Pennsylvania? Absolutely. So growing up, I always knew I had a desire to help others. I also had a really big passion for tech. Ultimately, as you might have just heard, I ultimately went clinical psychology, but the passion for tech didn't really disappear. So I knew, I knew early on, several years before I actually came here, that this was a top contender for where I wanted to come because I had worked with uh, several of the colleagues here. So Dr. Melanie Hetzelrigan, Dr. Richard Zhao over in computer science, uh, we had been working, along with some colleagues at Northwestern School of Medicine, on developing a simulation for training medical students to try and recognize signs of child physical abuse earlier so that they could be reported early on. So I knew that Barron offered a lot of the resources because I wanted to mix technology into the psychology. So it really had everything I wanted from an academic and research standpoint, right? It had access to very smart and capable undergraduates. It had a graduate student uh, body of clinical psychologists that I could teach and work with as well, ability for cross-discipline interactions, and access to advanced technology. Well, we're glad you're here. What, two or three years now? Uh, this is my fourth year. Fourth year, okay. Yep. See, time flies. And, you know, our psychology program is so active in research and undergraduate research and building that into everything that we do. And we're going to get into a lot of that. But first, as your bio said, you do work in ADHD. Everyone, it's a pretty common term. People know what that's about, or at least they think they do. And I think that's yeah. part of my question is, why don't you tell us a little bit about that line of research? What are the sort of problems you're trying to solve. And I'm also interested in what is it people don't understand that they think they do about ADHD? Yeah. Um, well, I would say that there's a lot that researchers don't understand that we thought we had historically understood. So it's really interesting for a disorder that's quite commonplace in the vernacular nowadays. There's still a lot that's misunderstood about this disorder. And so it's really engaging to be able to get into this research and try and elucidate some of these issues. For instance, for the past you know, 30 years, we've been studying it, but it's actually been a disorder under one name or another for well beyond that time. And up until recently, you know, the past two or three decades, we thought it was a disorder you grow out of. Mm -hmm. you, have, you know, you hit puberty and most grow out of it. We know that that's really not the case anymore. More recently, we're looking at, and you're probably hearing about it in the, in the news, 
adult onset ADHD. Mm -hmm. We're seeing an increase in that and we're trying to better understand how that's coming about. Is it just missed cases from childhood or because ADHD is typically thought of as a childhood neurodevelopmental disorder. So we see onset in childhood or at least we would expect to see that. There's some argument that that might not always be the case and that we might have adult onset separate from any childhood deficits being seen. So My guess is with all the technology in the world, which you, you do study and you use in a very positive way, and we'll, we'll get to that soon enough, though we know with social media and others, those things play into this as well, is my guess, and are factors that maybe aren't so hard to separate ADHD, but my guess contribute to people's ability to focus and have attention. Is, yeah. it, is that true or is that just a myth, you know, that we think, yeah. think these things do? I, I wouldn't, I would say that I don't know of large research body of evidence to suggest that it leads or uh, is any way directly related to onset of ADHD or causing it. But I will say that many individuals with ADHD, especially college age, which I'm yeah. passionate about the emerging adulthood, have, ex not extreme, but can have uh, significant difficulties with organization, time management, planning, prioritization. And those things for everybody, whether you have ADHD or not, have proven to be uh, something that can easily distract. Yeah. And so it can exponentially add on to the difficulties that may already be there for individuals with ADHD. Well, I'll just add one more piece to it. I mean, we know faculty members have told us they literally have students who are truly addicted. They can't almost stop mm -hmm. in the classroom. And, uh, you know, it just makes it all that much more difficult with all these technology distractions. Absolutely. Well, you are studying... You know, specifically, how do you use digital and immersive technologies to improve mental health? You have built this laboratory here with others called the Virtual and Augmented Reality Lab. And maybe just even for those who don't know, tell us, you know, what's virtual and augmented and what's this field mean? Mm -hmm. So it, it really goes beyond virtual and augmented reality. Overall, you could call it immersive reality. And anything that augments or... Um, supplements what we have in our natural environment. So virtual reality, you can think of it as, as goggles that completely put you in a new environment, whereas augmented reality is, um, I know a lot of people are familiar, probably the most popular augmented reality thing out is Pokemon Go. Yes. You know, uh, you hold your phone up and you can see these things that aren't actually in the outside in front of you or in your, in your room that you're in. That would be the augmentation part of it. So you're still in your own reality. It's augmented with digital aspects of it. And so we can use that in most realms to, to help in workplace within basically any major we have here on campus. We're going to start to see this kind of technology play a bigger role, whether it's through use of it in your job, mm -hmm. creation of content using this technology, um, or making this technology available to consumers from within your job. And so... Uh, it's really important to immerse our students in it. Well, I've seen so many applications. First of all, when the Pokemon craze was out, we saw all these people walking around yep. in our neighborhoods and everywhere else <laughs> saying, what are they doing? But from actually, I remember a student project a few years ago, it might predate you, but you may have been involved where Erie, we were working with an insurance company, Erie Insurance, in fact. And how do you help those who go in and, you know, the, the inspectors to look at damage and how do you augment the reality? You can see it in manufacturing training. Surgeons are using it. It's yeah. in hospitals. I mean, it's, it is really everywhere and becoming part of our everyday life. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, then how does, how does this play in and how does this improve? How do you use this in the mental health realm? So it, within mental health specifically, it really has a 
pretty wide range of applications. So we utilize it within our research, both basic and applied research. It also has been used to treat a number of specific disorders or um, issues, so things like PTSD or treatment of phobias can also help in certain applications with depression, anxiety, stuff like that, as well as just overall general mental wellness, right? Mm -hmm. So helping to reduce stress or just increase overall feelings of happiness or a sense of calm. And so really it can touch on most areas of psychology and through the uses, whether it's through, uh, you know, direct therapy or whether it's through assessing within virtual uh, spaces or augmented spaces or research, we can basically fit it into most things that we do. So if you're talking about direct therapy, or you're, let's say you're a clinical psychologist and you're practicing, I mean, is there something where people come to your office and use this in their environment? And how does that, yeah. how does that look? Absolutely. So it's, it's, quite fascinating because people think of virtual reality as something that's fairly new, but it's been going on for decades now. So um, some of the earliest uses came about were developed virtual reality applications were developed to help treat PTSD in combat veterans that mm -hmm. had returned. Uh, I believe the earliest use was creating VR simulations for Vietnam War veterans. And that was back in 1997. So it's been going on wow. for decades. But um, even today, our advances in it have made it so much more immersive that we can put somebody in a situation and work to expose them to their feared stimuli and walk them through that to reduce that, that fear response until we can eventually extinguish it. Yeah, it's a very strong response, the fear response. And, Absolutely. Uh, I know, hard to deal with. Well, let's switch. Is, you know, sticking with that, though, uh, you know, when COVID hit, we saw the, the impact that it had on mental health. It still continues to this day. Just to date us, you know, here we are in August 2021. But you and your colleagues and students saw a real need. You came together to create a, an app uh, and created it quite quickly during the early part of the pandemic called Serene. So what does Serene do and what's the experience you're having with it? Absolutely. So Serene is meant to be a not necessarily a direct treatment. It's meant to be a community mental health resource. And with that, when I say community, we really meant for it to be specific to our Erie region, not just Erie as a city, but the you know Northwest mm -hmm. Pennsylvania area. And so uh, we wanted to offer a number of things that would help individuals while they're trying to cope throughout this pandemic. So things like a lot of times we, we started to see increases in things such as isolation, stress, anger, a lot of frustration. How do parents, how are they supposed to manage their children and keep their kids engaged while we're also saying, hey, don't go visit friends, don't go outside really, um, you know, you need to isolate. And so what we did was put together a number of exercises. My graduate student in the clinical program worked with me to put together the, um, the clinical content of it and we put together uh, she created a number of mindfulness videos uh, and exercises that were geared towards the whole gamut of individuals. So senior citizens, children, families, individual adults uh, that people could use in, you know, three to five minutes, something quick and easy, simple to do. We also put together lists of activities specific to the Erie region uh, because we know in psychology, especially clinical psychology, behavioral activation can be a very strong component towards overall wellness. So just doing stuff, getting out and mm -hmm. doing stuff. But that's hard when we're saying isolates. Uh, yeah. It was distance. really important to, to get yeah. out and be, be in the outdoors environment as yep. this whole thing was, uh, was, was going along. You know, one of the 
the things that, that really impressed me when I looked at, at your background is not only the research you're doing, but how much you involve students. And in fact, I think you even had a student co-author a book with you. Is that correct? Uh, uh, or so, contribute to a book? So maybe yeah. fill us in a little bit about that project. Absolutely. So um, most of the things that have come out of the lab are written or co-written with, between myself and our students in the lab. Um, so we just recently published a chapter in a book on digital mental health, and that was published in uh, collaboration with one of my graduate students who happened, I happened to be the chair of her thesis. Um, we worked really well in the lab together, so we put that together. Given the need that we're seeing, it seemed very relevant, and so that was just recently published. And we've also put on a couple of conference presentations with undergraduates in the lab uh, related to the various uh, the various exhibits we're doing or the various technologies we're using. Uh, for instance, with COVID, one of the things we had to get early on to continue the research was a UVC light box mm-hmm. so that we didn't spread COVID using our headsets. So we did some presentations on that at digital uh, conferences that were put on by Duke University. So Yeah, that was a really nice piece of technology to yeah. pick up. I did see that in, in your lab. But, I mean, what a great accomplishment for a student as well to be, be able to have that on their, on their resume. The other thing is, you, you, you know, I, I looked on your web pages, I know from talking to you, you're always trying to recruit students, and uh, that's a really good thing. But maybe some of them are a little bit hesitant. They think, I can't get involved in quote-unquote research. I mean, what's your, your advice to them for getting involved, and what are some of the characteristics of a good student researcher? You don't have to be the A-plus student to, to get involved, do you? No, not at all. Um, I would say... When I look and speak with students, what I'm looking for most is somebody who is passionate about the work, somebody who's a go-getter. You don't have to know everything. I don't expect everybody to come in being a programmer or being a clinical psychologist or an engineer. I just expect students, if they have a passion and a desire to learn, Mm -hmm. great. That's what's needed. We can then fit a plan of action around whatever is going to work best to help provide you with experiences that will suit you post-graduation. Yeah, humans, people can really do a lot more than they believe. All they have to do is apply themselves, have some enthusiasm. So student researchers, if you're out there listening, you know where to find Dr. Shelton. And So I want to switch to this uh, virtual and augmented reality lab that you have built uh, along with your colleagues here in uh, Knowledge Park. Tell us what the mission of that lab is. So the mission of that lab goes well beyond what I do in clinical psychology. We're really focused on four key areas in terms of trying to uh, utilize or create exhibits and experiences with immersive technology. And so those four areas that we're involved in include my area of digital mental health, as well as use of these technologies within education, within the workplace, and within digital preservation. And so really those four areas are quite broad and so we're able to utilize and recruit students from most of most if not all i would say actually of our majors here on campus Uh, and we have a number of high-tech hardware and software that we're using within the lab that really will start to become much more commonplace in the workplace environment so it's great that our students have a chance to utilize that to become versed in either using it or creating with it and so it really helps to provide them with future-ready experiences. You know, you're bringing together community, our students, and your research. 
to me, as you know, that's that's the whole philosophy behind the open laboratory. So I will ask you, I mean, does this help you advance your research and what you're trying to do? Because you said it goes beyond that, but is this really providing support? Is it moving your career along? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of our four arms is directly related to mental health and digital wellness. So it's absolutely um, plays into that. And it's interesting because these technologies have such a wide role in psychology, most of what we do in the other realms as well can play a role in psychology and can be utilized in some psychological research down the line. And so I have expectations that um, I or colleagues in my department will be able to make use of these experiences to test them, see if, for instance, some of our, some of our tours that we're building are, are tours that you know um, no longer exist. And so if we can put people in these immersive experiences, does that help to raise you know, a sense of happiness or a sense of calm for individuals like in our Waterford uh, Fort LaBeouf project? A lot in, in talking with them, what surprised me is they said, you know, we've had a museum here for decades and individuals have come in and said, I've lived here all my life and didn't realize it was here. Yeah. But if you did and suddenly you couldn't visit it, say you were injured or mobility limited, virtual reality, us creating this experience, perhaps gives you a chance to visit it again if you couldn't otherwise. And so, I think that's a great example, you know, and there are many, but let's start with the Fort LaBeouf project. So, I mean, what's the historical significance first of uh, Fort LaBeouf? What, what occurred there? Yeah, absolutely. So Fort LaBeouf played a really pivotal role. Um, it was one of the Ohio Valley forts. Uh, we also out here have Fort Presque Isle. What's interesting is it, it has a quite a long and storied history. It was uh, one of George Washington's first posts. He came up here to request that the, uh, that the French leave. And was not successful. Was not <laughs> successful. Uh, but the fort went on to switch hands and was burnt down and rebuilt several times, uh, three times in all. But eventually, after the third time it was burnt down, it was never rebuilt. And so that's unfortunate. We don't have that resource to, uh, as a physical resource to show uh, students to show community and there's physical buildings on that footprint that you can't really rebuild it in a physical sense anymore there's stuff yeah. there now but what we can do is build it in uh, a digital way so you know that brings us to a really interesting part of this discussion is the fort doesn't exist but yet you've rebuilt it virtually and digitally how how did you do that so I've got to give credit where credit's due, and a large part of that was driven by one of my undergraduate researchers, Erica Jurisangani, who, together with me, we applied for some money over the summer to have her work full-time on this. And so she spent 40 hours a week all summer long working to both learn CAD to design it, mm -hmm. as well as going through the historical documents just to figure out what the blueprints were, what the layout was, what was the composition of the materials. The historical society out there was able to give us a lot of documentation. They had some rough sketches of the, the fort plan, but it was just that. It was one-dimensional lines, right? We didn't know how tall the, the walls were. We didn't know what the roofing material was, stuff like that. And so she went back through uh, George Washington Thankfully, he was a surveyor who took meticulous notes, and so she went back through some wow. of his journals, and he had written about, you know, we have some uh, bark roofs on certain buildings, and our fort walls are, you know, yay high. I think it was eight feet. 
So she was able to pull a lot of information to make it as accurate as possible in, in collaboration with the Historical Society. I will say that, you know, when I looked at the rendering, that was what struck me is that it wasn't just a stick figure that you had really put the skin on it, so to speak, so that it looked far more realistic than that. Right. Yeah. So where will this live? I mean, is it going to be in a museum? So this will, uh, upon completion, and we're very close to completion of phase one of it, it will be given to the Fort LaBeouf Historical Society, or I believe they're now the Waterford Historical Society. Wow. And their plan is to make it available to individuals on the internet so that those who can't make it out to the site can see it. What a great partnership. Well, let's talk about another high-profile project here in Erie, which was uh, related to uh, the, the grand reopening of the uh, Hagen History Center. And you had a project related to uh, Olive, called Oliver Perry's Telescope. What's that one about? Yeah, so that one was a, an immersive experience that went along with the physical pieces that they had acquired and uh, put on uh, display. Namely, they had just recently acquired his telescope. And so what we found really interesting about that is the telescope was quite pricey and it was very delicate. So mm -hmm. it was something that can't be handled. But in looking at who visits and the education behind that, and we know that a lot of children will come through, we wanted to give them an experience of like what this is actually like, especially trying to understand how these things were used. A lot of times, most kids nowadays have smartphones. Mm -hmm. The cameras on a smartphone uh, most of the time have a field of vision that's wider than our human vision, uh, so upwards of 120 degrees, right? That's not what these one-eyed spyglass telescopes provided. Right, much different, 2x magnification. Um, and so it's a different experience, but not being able to hold that or see that or understand that this is something three feet long uh, makes it difficult. So we wanted to create it in 3D uh, so that they could move around it in a digital sense and see all the different inscriptions that they couldn't see from one angle in the physical exhibit. And then we wanted to create a digitized mini game to provide the experience of what it might have looked like and how difficult it might have been for him to actually utilize this during the battle. And so we have historical paintings of each of the ships that we have superimposed over the lake, and you can move around with, with the idea it looks like you're looking through the yeah, telescope. Yeah, it looks like the, the original difficulties that you had, and you right. have, probably have to put some work into it. And Absolutely. What sort of feedback are you getting now that it's in use? We're getting great feedback from it. Um, the director there, the uh, educational uh, director as well, they uh, have expressed that people are really enjoying using it. Um, and we have, I think the, the level of engagement has been such that there's a lot of movement towards future phases. We have a number of um, future phases that we want to implement things like more uh, interactive elements. We want to implement video and audio into the experience to really give a sense of that battlefield and what that might have been like for for visitors to the museum. Wow, it's uh, and that museum is uh, it's impressive, and uh, we appreciate all the work that you did there. I will say that on behalf of uh, Baron, and well, it's a, just a great showcase for us. Well, let's switch to one more project, mm -hmm. and that's the right now we've got a project uh, called the Immersive Baron History Project, mm -hmm. and you're yeah. working with uh, Dr. Elisa Bashero Bandar in our Digit major. So tell us a little bit about that one too. So that one, I. I love history, and when I, I came to Behrend, I really tried to immerse myself in the Behrend history, and it's, it's fascinating what this campus was before it was a campus. And there's so much history we have from the Behrend family that I thought, you know, it always surprises me 
when I talk to students that I, I feel like a lot of times they don't even realize what we have on campus, many of them. And so I wanted to make a way to make it real and make it here and now for them. And so looking at what we had in the Barrend archives down in the Lilly Library, I noticed we had a ton of stuff that we could we do. create digital applications for to make it seem much more real and much more present. Um, and so we have silent films of what this used to be, what the property used to be. We have pictures of what the property used to be that we can pull from to create some augmented reality experiences to show before you know the dorms were there, what did it look like? What did Mary Barron's gardens look like? Or you know they used to host a lot out in the pool. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we actually have video of some of the competitions that they held in the pool. And so we can pull from that and turn it into almost like a then versus now picture within mm -hmm. your camera or iPad where you're like, okay. You see them both side by side, side. by side. Wow. Yeah. So you can see what it was. In fact, Glen Hill, the house we're sitting in right now, we have construction photos of it, which is really interesting to put up side by side to see, okay, this was what it was while it was being built. And here's what it is now. Well, you know, and for the, our listeners, we are sitting in the memorial room here in the Glen Hill farmhouse. And Looking around us, we have many of the artifacts and pieces of art that the Barron family owned from, you know, mm -hmm. the, the globe over there that is uh, pre-World War One uh, for sure and uh, is uh, in German to their grandfather clock. I mean, I could just go on and on. So I love to show that off when people come here. And, of course, uh, Rick Hart, our former librarian, I don't know if you've been able to read his book about the construction of this house, but if not, I'll make sure you get a copy of that uh, today as well. Well, I want to, before we finish up, I, I want to talk uh, about our, our educational programs. And you teach mm -hmm. in the clinical psych graduate program and the undergraduate programs that we have in psychology. So give us your, your pitch. Why, why should a student study those? What, if, what would their interest be and why should they come here to Barron? So I think the why coming to Barron is an easy one to answer. We have not just clinical psychology, we have a wide range of faculty members such that any or just about any area of psychology you may be interested in, we have folks here practicing that in the field, having industry experience, and have come to Barron to teach it. So we have folks who are specialists in industry uh, and industrial organizational psychology. Mm -hmm. We have educational psychology. We have design and UX, UI, um, and engineering psychologists. We have the whole gamut. And so really, psychology is so broad at the undergrad level, if you want to be involved in psychology in some facet, we have professors here that can directly address your particular interest, which is amazing. And a whole lot of opportunities after you graduate, whether you go into the, quote, workforce or you go up for, to, for graduate school. Absolutely, yeah. The, the need for mental health, for instance, far surpasses our resources. And so for our graduate students in the clinical program, right now, most places can't get enough uh, mental health specialists to come in and work. There's just not enough out there that have been trained. And so it's a, it's a field in demand right now. Well, how about the uh, master's program in clinical psych? Who, might, who, would, who would be interested in that program? I would say anyone that has a desire to help others, really. I mean, given that it's clinical, it's much more uh, directly interacting with individuals uh, to help diagnose, treat, um, 
but it also can act as a very good springboard towards moving on to even further education, so going on to a doctorate program. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about our program is that it's not just applied. Uh, we have a very strong empirical research focus to it as well. So many of our students, if they're interested in moving on to a graduate program, have opportunities to avail themselves in further research and co-author or author publications, presentations, uh, and whatnot to make them more uh, strong candidates. Post-graduation. The, the word is getting out because I looked at the enrollment numbers and they're pretty strong this fall. So Absolutely. Kudos to you and all of your colleagues. Thank you. Well, I'll give you the last word. Is there anything else you would like to add before we finish out here? Absolutely. So I would like to say if there's students out there listening or anyone in the community, if you're interested in this type of work and would like to play a role, reach out. We're always looking for new collaborators, students. We have so many different facets of our work that you don't have to be a clinical psychologist. We are, I'm working with uh, students in engineering, in business, in communication, in digit. We will find work that is specific to what you want to do in the future so that you're gaining valuable life experience that you can utilize post-graduation. So reach out. We're super friendly and easy to communicate with. You've heard Chris. He's, he and his collaborators, they really are easy to reach out to. You can find them easily on our webpage. Uh, I'm Dr. Ralph Ford. You have been listening to Barron Talks, and my guest today has been Dr. Chris Shelton, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology and Director of our Virtual and Augmented Reality Lab. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you for having me.